This week's podcast is brought to you by Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so that learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Hi, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I am Jeff Young, the managing editor of Ed Surge. We're living in a world of big data. It's a time when understanding statistics can feel like a matter of life or death. After all, we're still in this global pandemic. I was actually looking to see when this thing will technically be over. I guess it's not. And that means constantly kind of weighing statistics like the number of COVID cases and the number of hospitalizations and what percentage of people gotten vaccines. We're all wondering where the trend lines are going. And all of that is statistics. But it's also a time of a lot of misinformation and people, especially online, skewing data and statistics, often based on some agenda. All of this makes for a tremendous challenge for education. When even teachers and professors and people in education are struggling to stay data literate and to make sense of all these statistics. Our guest today is someone who has advice on better understanding the numbers in our world. And he's somebody who has a gift for turning his lessons about data into compelling stories. It's Tim Harford, a best-selling author and a radio journalist for the BBC. His latest book is called The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. The book is a great read. I totally recommend it. But I actually came across his work from his podcast, Cautionary Tales. It's put out by Malcolm Gladwell's podcast company, Pushkin. And it's become one of my very favorites. Each episode, Harford uses a surprising true story from history to offer some life lessons. The pitch is that it's like fairy tales, but for grown-ups. Oh, and it's all true. And Harford brings a lot of his best research from the book into the podcast. Somebody recommended Cautionary Tales because they knew I've been going down a rabbit hole lately about how do we understand data and all this information and misinformation in the world today. And Harford offers some fresh insights that I, I think really speak to people in education. Because as you'll hear, he notes that sometimes people who are the most educated and the experts can be the ones that are easily fooled by fakes and misinformation. And Harford has some strategies for ways to approach data that can help avoid being intimidated or fooled. We started out talking about a book that is kind of a classic, and it's one that I actually had to read in grad school in a research methods class, that Harford says is teaching the wrong lessons about data. One of the books that it seems like got you started is one that I think a lot of people know as a touchstone, which is How to Lie with Statistics. But it sounds like you see that as maybe not ideal as far as a, a, a primer on how to think about numbers and how they're used. What What is the... What is the challenge of that book? Or what do you see as, as something that, that you're sort of maybe kind of pushing against it a little bit as you jump into your book? So How to Lie with Statistics was published in the early 1950s by a journalist called Daryl Huff. And it is probably the best-selling book ever published about statistics. 
and there's a lot to like about it. I mean, it's it's very well written. It's funny. It's insightful, full of great cartoons. And yeah, it was one of my introductions to thinking clearly about numbers. It is a troubling book in two ways. The first is that by presenting the problem as basically one of dealing with misinformation, Huff leads his readers to the sense that all you really need to do is just disbelieve everything. And as long as you disbelieve any claim with a number attached, any graph, any percentage, you'll be fine. In other words, that 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 statistics kind of exist for lying in a way? That is the sense that you will get. I'm not sure he ever quite says that, but that is the distinct impression you get. You do not get, for example the sense of statistics being used to provide vital information about the uh, the economy, the environment, public health. The idea, for example, that statistics might uh, really save our necks in the middle of a pandemic and that we should devote some resources to gathering accurate statistics, that is not something you would ever get from Darrell Huff. Uh, so that's a problem. And there is another problem that is kind of ad hominem, but I think it's important too, which is that in the end, Daryl Huff ended up working for the tobacco lobby, attacking the epidemiologists and the statisticians and the doctors who had used statistics to provide compelling evidence that smoking cigarettes was very bad for your health. And I don't think this is a coincidence because actually his modus operandum of of kind of being funny and sort of casting doubt and giving people a reason to not take the experts too seriously. That was absolutely perfect for the tobacco lobby's strategy. Uh, he even worked on a sequel, which was never published, called How to Lie with Smoking Statistics. So, you know, I know it's not, logically speaking, you can't condemn a book just because the author did a bad thing. The book can still be of merit, and I think the book is still of merit. But it's not irrelevant because it absolutely feeds into this very corrosive narrative that basically the statistics are always a lie. And the, the smartest thing you can do is just to dismiss the whole thing as fake news. Mm. And that connection that he actually then was hired by the tobacco lobby as a, wow, this will help us kind of cast doubt on people saying smoking is, is bad for you. I, absolutely. And there's there's a long history of that strategy, of the, the kind of the manufacturing of doubt strategy. We see it over and over again. And it's very powerful because it it takes the some of the fundamental principles of science and it just kind of cranks them up a notch and turns them into a weapon. So the idea that, you know, you shouldn't just take something on trust because an authority figure says it, you should examine the evidence. Um, the idea that Insight comes through discussion and disputation. Uh, the idea that things are usually more complicated than they first appear. All this stuff, which is sort of good scientific thinking. You just need to give that a shove. And pretty quickly you get into the sense of, well, I don't need to pay any attention to anybody with any evidence or any authority or any, any insight because it's all a lie. And you can get to that very corrosive place very quickly. Yeah. And... There, so you have a different formulation I do. In, your, in your book. And I want to just kind of briefly, you know, start with the kind of broad elevator pitch of, of data detectives and how you 
Um, you know, so it's not all hopeless. You don't have to, we don't have to treat data this way, uh, you think. What, what do you think is a better way to kind of pick, kind of position talking about data literacy? Okay, so I'm not sure I use the phrase data literacy in, in the book, but I think it is possible for people with fairly uh, basic uh, training, fairly minimal education to make good sense of numerical claims. You do not need to have a PhD in, in statistics to ask the right questions. So that's the, you know, number one, it, this is easier than you think. Number two, this is actually more difficult than you think because you also have to examine all your own biases and all the ways you might deceive yourself. And the best experts in the world can deceive themselves and so can the rest of us. So we need to understand our emotional responses. So those are, those are sort of two basic principles. And the third is simply that this is important. We need as individuals, as citizens, as voters, to be willing to put in a bit of effort to distinguish between truth and lies. Um, we can't just reflexively accept everything, but we also can't just reflexively reject everything. Um, we need to put in that effort and it is possible and it can be done. And the rewards for that are tremendous because statistics have actually produced really vital insights. The example I begin the book with, in parallel with the story of Daryl Huff, is the use of statistics to discover that it turns out cigarettes are really bad for you. But we've used statistics to track the pandemic. We've used statistics to evaluate the vaccines. We use statistics to figure out how the economy is doing and who is most in need of help. We use statistics to evaluate the education system. We use statistics to measure what's happening to, to our planet and so on and so on. There's, the, there's just there's truths about the world that you just cannot perceive without the use of statistics. And so I, I also wanted to kind of plant a, a flag for for the geeks and say that this stuff is actually important and it's worth putting a bit of effort in um, and that we can all do it. It's not as hard as it seems. Now on your, um, some of the research in your book and the, the, the fascinating stories you uncover also appear in your, in your podcast, Cautionary Tales. And there's one that I think is an interesting example of, of exactly what we're talking about, where there's a, um, it, it involves paintings and, whether they're legit or not, um, whether they're painted by, um, and particularly some Vermeers that were um, kind of contested. Can you, for for those who, who don't know the story, could you give a nutshell approach of how, I think what's really interesting to me is that there's a sense that just being an expert does not necessarily make you better at spotting, um, you know, someone trying to, to to trick you with statistics or information. Yeah, it is an amazing story, and, and I, I would slightly, I would describe these alleged Vermeers slightly differently. I would not say they were contested. I would say they were rotten fakes, and we 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 know for sure that they're rotten fakes. And and in particular, the rotten faker who painted them confessed to to the forgeries. But what is interesting is that the world's leading expert in in Vermeer paintings was fooled. I'm going to cut in here and just play a short clip from Harford's podcast, from Cautionary Tales. It's from the episode where he's talking about this fascinating case involving these fake Vermeers. It's called The Art Forger, The Nazi, and The Pope. He describes a scene in which this forger brings a fake Vermeer titled Christ at Emmaus 
to this world-famous art critic trying to get the painting certified as legit. The old man was spellbound. He delivered his verdict. Christ at Emmaus was not only a genuine Vermeer, it was the Dutch master's finest work. We have here, I am inclined to say, the masterpiece of Johannes Vermeer of Delft. Quite different from all his other paintings, and yet, every inch a Vermeer. So I hope this gives you a little bit of an idea of that podcast, which I totally recommend. Um, They have famous actors who are actually bringing these long-gone historical figures to life. Anyway, now back to my interview with Tim Harford. What really engages me about the story is this character of the art critic, Abraham Bradius, who was so smart, who understood more about Vermeer than anybody else, and he was just fooled by a bad forgery because he wanted so badly for it to be real. And the fact that he was an expert in some ways made things worse because where you or I would look at the painting and go, well, gee, it it doesn't really look like a Vermeer. Didn't Vermeer do that girl with the pearl earring thing? I mean, this, this doesn't look like that. The expert was able to, you know, he would know, yeah, yeah, it doesn't look like the girl with the pearl earring, but it's painted on a 17th century canvas. I know that the canvas is genuine. There is an antique in this painting that I can see is a genuine antique. He is using the exact right shade of blue and that, that no modern painter would use, but Vermeer would have used, etc., uh, etc. Et there are just a, a dozen small things that he can only see because he's an expert. And he uses all of the small pieces of evidence to convince himself that this thing is real. And so the the book, The Data Detective, is is structured as, as 10 pieces of advice. And the first piece of advice I give is uh, to, to check your feelings. Uh, search your feelings, I think, is the quote from Star Wars. And uh, you need to search your feelings because your feelings are very, very influential on what you believe. And expertise is useful and expertise is important. But if you get carried away with your emotional response to any claim, and it's very common for that to happen because statistical claims, headlines, social media posts, they're designed to elicit an emotional response. If you get carried away with your emotional response to any claim, you are going to fool yourself. And that is the number one principle. And it's it's so difficult and yet so simple to deal with. You just need to notice, oh, I'm... I'm afraid, or I, I'm in denial, or I'm, I feel vindicated, I feel this shows that I was right all along about something, or whatever. Just notice that you're having an emotional reaction, and that's fine. And then having noticed, go back and have a look at the claim again, and it will look different. After the break, why curiosity is the best antidote to bad data. Stay with us. You're reinventing education models in real time. The rise of distance and hybrid learning means staff and students are relying on your systems like never before. But you also need solutions that are simple to use, work together seamlessly, and are backed by world-class support. That's why educators everywhere trust Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so the learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, 
or providing secure remote access for distance learning. Count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Join Cisco at ISTE Live 2021 to build a bridge to the future of education together. Plus, attend three Cisco sessions and automatically receive a Cisco-branded coffee mug and be entered for your chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. One winner will be chosen on Monday and Tuesday of the show. Valid for U.S. participants only. Learn more at cs.co slash isd21. That's cs.co slash isd21. Now back to the episode. And I was also struck by the, the, the amount of attention you give to the idea of curiosity and how much that can be a factor when faced with bogus claims or, or claims that are, like you said, there are these cases where people are trying to, to trick you. And that, you know, that does, that certainly does happen like the Vermeer example, but it's also happening on our daily life on the, on the internet. And what, why is curiosity important? Curiosity is important for, for two big reasons. Uh, The first I think is, is the obvious one, which is that curiosity is a virtue that motivates us to be humble about what we don't know and uh, motivates us to fill that gap, uh, to find out more about the world, to seek out fresh information and fresh perspectives. And that's that's very important. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that curiosity is very is very important for understanding statistics because very often there's a lot more to statistics than meets the eye. Um, let me just give you an example I'm working on right now for, for the BBC is a claim that the average age of gamers is uh, over 40. And well, is that true? Is that not true? Actually, the curious minded person first has to say, well, hang on a minute. What do you mean by a gamer? Like, what is a gamer? Because in my head, I'm thinking Xbox, PlayStation. But if I'm playing words with friends over Facebook, you know, I'm an 80-year-old and I'm playing with my 80-year-old friends, is that a gamer? Does that count? If I'm, you know, 65 and I play Candy Crush uh, while I'm waiting for my hairdressing appointment, am I a gamer? Like, if I, if I play Scrabble uh, in, real, in real life, not online, am I a gamer? Like, what is it that you mean? And if I play like a game once every three months... Is that a game or do I have to play like 10 hours or more a week? Um, There's no right or wrong answer to that question, but you just have to start asking the questions before you... It's not even interesting whether that claim is true or not. What's interesting is like, what might that claim even mean? And then you start asking the questions and you start finding all kinds of interesting things out about the world. Um, But I said there's a second reason why curiosity is important. And the second reason I think is less obvious which is that we live in a very polarized world. We have our political tribes, we have our preconceptions, we have people who we tend to believe and people who we tend to disbelieve. We've TV channels that we watch, the people we follow on social media and those that we reject. And that's just a sad fact about the world. Uh, curiosity is something that the, the academic research suggests is one of the few antidotes to that. So being more educated does not solve polarization, does not make you more open-minded to what the other side think. Um, But being curious does. And the mechanism seems to be simply that um, a curious person 
when they're faced with a surprising piece of information, that in and of itself is kind of immediately engaging. It's like, huh, I didn't, I don't think that's true. I didn't, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, I want to find out more rather than the more natural reaction, which is, huh, I don't think that's true. I'm not sure that's right. That must be more fake news. I don't need to think about it anymore. So curiosity is tremendously important for that reason. It's, it's, um, it's not just the motivation to find out more about the world, although that's very important. It's also that it is something of a, an antidote to the polarization that I think really makes all of us dumber when we're trying to reason about the world. You also, in, in one of your cautionary tales, it, it, you talk about discovery and how um, an example of a very interesting scholar. It, it, this one is is also one that has so many rich details because it involves gambling and um, kind of a, a legendary computer a pioneer. But but the interesting thing is that there's there's a sense of like what it means to pursue kind of specialized work or to to kind of drift to to several things. And I'm curious, um, you know, what there, there, there's a, I, I feel like a lot of the things where I'm asking are really get to this kind of culture of higher education in a way, like where expertise is prized um, and, and, and people are in a world where they're, they're kind of looking at a world where they're trying to help people understand and, and maybe fight against things like polarization, or at least kind of at least be aware of the kind of polarization and be armed with an ability um, to kind of not get caught up or sucked up into just a, a tribal situation. And another one is this idea that there's a lot of specialization and, and a culture of really drilling into one very micro topic at a, in higher ed these days, I think it's safe to say. But but you found some, some examples of where that may not lead to the most, um, you know, kind of breakthroughs and and a kind of a counter example that was was quite a, a story so I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of tell that that tale for us i feel like i'm queuing up wonderful episodes people should should listen to fully <laughs> on your podcast and i can link to those but but could you could you kind of briefly kind of tell this story yes the the title of that episode is fritter in a way genius and it it is about the remarkable computer scientist claude shannon and did he or did he not waste most of his academic life doing stupid stuff? Or was the stupid stuff essential to the uh, the two unbelievably uh, important conceptual breakthroughs he, he made? Um, and I just, I'm personally, I'm, I'm never quite sure. I think one of the reasons that makes this so interesting is not just that he was such a fascinating character but that it is genuinely difficult to know how to feel about what he did um but the the question that you and i and i encourage people to listen to the story because i mean it it is it's quite a story and it's it's it defies easy summary but the point that you you're getting towards of generalization versus specialization of people who move from one field to another versus people who stay put I think this is a really interesting challenge for us in the modern world because we all kind of know that a lot of the interesting breakthroughs happen at intersections 
of different disciplines. Like we, we know that. And yet it turns out to be very difficult to make that work at the intersections actually happen. And one of my books, Messy, really started as an attempt to wrestle with how hard this problem is because all of the incentives are pushing you towards staying in your silo. I mean, there's the, there's the fundamental structure of knowledge, which is just like we know more and more. And so because we know more and more, you have to learn more and more before you get to the frontier of knowledge. Uh, that pushes people to, to focus because that focus enables you to get to the frontier of knowledge. Um, but and that's, that's a real sort of uh, thing that's going on. But at the same time, there are all these um, institutional or organizational or cultural factors pushing us towards specialization. Like we, we don't get promoted by impressing people outside our field. We get promoted by impressing people inside our field. Like the, the, the journals are structured according to, you know, whatever we thought the logical state of knowledge was in the late 1800s. I mean, a lot of these journals are that old um, and they're just hardwired to um, tenure decisions. They're hardwired to funding decisions, sort of research ratings, university ratings, all of this stuff. Um, just there's so much of this system that is just locked in and it's very, very hard to break out of for some good reasons and for some bad reasons. And that is something I think we we need to wrestle with. And, it, and it's not as simple as simply going, oh, well, people should be more interdisciplinary because yeah, yeah, they should. But there's a reason why this stuff doesn't happen. Uh, there's a reason why it's hard. But every now and then we see the consequence. You just have to look at the, how we deal with coronavirus to realize you've, you've just got people in particular bubbles who know a lot about a certain thing, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, the genetics of a virus and nothing at all about another thing like how do you persuade people to wear masks um, and trying to get all the people with all the relevant knowledge to work together is not a straightforward problem but it's becoming uh, more and more important to, to deal with the research suggests there's, there's an economist called benjamin jones at kellogg who studies this kind of thing the research suggests that the, the typical academic research these days involves a group of people who are older, who are more specialised, a larger team, more disciplines involved. In other words, the whole thing is less and less of a kind of an academic problem and more and more of an organisational problem. And organisational problems are difficult to solve. I wonder how optimistic are you that these huge information problems that we're challenges we're facing right now polarization, misinformation, and kind of organization of knowledge is, uh, can kind of get better because so much is at stake, as you point out, from the coronavirus and to many other things. There is a lot at stake and it, it is easy to uh, get downcast. On the other hand, we have been here before again and again and again. We've had bad journalism before. We've had demagogues before. Uh, you know, we've had people believing things that that are absurd before, and I think it's hard to argue that it's that it's worse now. It's you know, it's different now. It's always different. It always changes, and so I think we continue to try to adapt and to try to develop a kind of um, you know metaphorical immunity to the misinformation. Uh, the, the thing that gives me some hope is that. Deep down, I think if, if people are trying to be 
well-informed, it has never been easier. We've never had more resources. You think of obvious things such as Wikipedia, but things like epidemiology Twitter. You want to follow some epidemiologists on Twitter. There's a lot of amazing stuff going on. Um, or just, or just you know, finding the original sources of data. Previously, something would be, you know, there'd be some graph on a page of a newspaper or a photocopied report, and and to actually go and examine the data behind it would have been, you know, a massive project, probably impossible. Now, as a matter of routine, anybody can just click through and see the underlying data and kind of play with it and discuss it. Um, so, and it's never been easier to fool yourself. It's never been easier to to put yourself into a bubble, into an echo chamber. But at the same time, it's never been easier to, to get really high quality help, to ask smart questions and to go deep. So fundamentally, this is about motivation. How curious are we? How badly do we want to know the truth? Or do we just want to feel right and feel you know, that we're a member of our tribe? And I think that's the question that's going to prove definitive. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. But thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your perspective and your your fascinating uh, stories. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks so much. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Cautionary Tales actually has been a big inspiration for our ongoing podcast series called Bootstraps, where we explore the origins of some long-held ideas in education and how some folks say they need to change to, to make more equitable education systems. We're still working on our next episode of that series, so stay tuned um, right on this feed. It'll be here in a couple weeks. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter, at JRYoung. Music this episode was by Mystery Mammal. It's, we found it on the Free Music Archive. The track is called This Is What It Feels Like. If you want to make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Ed Surge podcast, please sign up for our podcast newsletter, you can find that on edsearch.com. Go to the top right, click on newsletters. And of course, that includes resources and background material on all the topics that we dig into. And if you like the show, please tell a friend on social media or in person and give us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. We will be back next week with more on how education's changing. Thank you for listening.